Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The stalks are as high as an elephant's eye. And I hope that they're climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful evening. Oh, what a beautiful play. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going our way. I had a second verse, but I cut it short. We need to get on with the show. My name is Aaron Nicholson, and welcome uh, this evening. Hello and welcome to tonight's special program hosted by TheaterWorks Silicon Valley and the Commonwealth Club. If you haven't guessed already, I'm the director of development, so I'm singing about money. And uh, at this moment is a special moment. We're here in this theater on Ohlone land together, celebrating trans stories and voices. Thank you for coming here to listen and helping to amplify these valuable artists. Before we get started, a few reminders. Tonight's program is being recorded, so we kindly ask that you silence your cell phones, uh, all phones, cell or otherwise, for the duration of the program. Uh, also, if you have any questions for Shakina, please fill them out on the question cards that will be collected for our moderator uh, to ask. And now... It is my pleasure uh, to introduce our special guest. Shakina is an actress and transgender activist best known for her role as Lola, a trans truther on the second and third seasons of Hulu's Difficult People, where she was also a writing consultant. In 2020, Shakina made history as the first trans person to have a starring role on a major network comedy show on NBC's Connecting. Shakina graduated from the University of Santa Cruz and pursued her, pursued her MFA in experimental choreography and PhD in critical dance studies at the University of California, Riverside. She was also a, a founding member and artistic director of New York's Musical Theater Factory. Uh, moderating tonight's program is Michelle Miao, host of the Michelle Miao Show and member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Please join me in welcoming Shakina and Michelle. Well, hello, hello. Hi. Shakina faces and smiles. <laughs> um, does it feel good to be here in California and Palo Alto? Does it feel like home? It does feel like home. You know, um, I did go to school at UC Santa Cruz, and I always say I grew up in Southern California, but I'm ideologically identified with the Bay Area. So that's how I often have to introduce myself. And I have a lot of family in the area, too, who are here tonight, which is really awesome. Yay, family. Shout out to the fam. Having that kind of support is so amazing. It feels so good, especially as a queer person, LGBTQIA plus person. That's right? right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You know, I always start the program with a coming out story for this reason. I mean, I know that in some spaces it might be, you know, just kind of old school by now. We don't really need to tell coming out stories. But at the same time, it still gives some relevance and importance for us to create safe space. Yeah. You know, I first, I think the first folks that I told um, that I was queer, before I had the language to describe my transness, 
was a small group of friends that I had in junior high and I was 11 years old and I was like, I think that I'm gay. And they were all like, we're gay too. And it was this amazing like sigh of relief, you know, to know that I wasn't the only one and that my friends were all in the same boat. And I, I think it's important to share that story because so many people even today are, you know, questioning young folks' abilities to know themselves. And I'm living proof that I knew myself way back when. I probably I would assume that you knew yourself pretty far back. And, you know, queer youth have always been there and they will always be there. Yeah. Thank you for that. I did know. I did know. I think, you know, the first show I started watching was, don't make fun of me, but it was General Hospital. And Amazing. <laughs> I used to lock myself in the room because my mom wouldn't let me watch stuff like that. But um, I remember having a crush on Susan Lucci. Who didn't have a crush on Susan Lucci? <laughs> Did you have a TV crush growing up? Um, I had a lot of TV crushes. I think my first TV crush, let's see, uh, aside from Joey Joe from New Kids on the Block, but that's more of a music crush, I... Um, Man, I feel uh, I feel really bad that I can't think of his name, but um, the guy from Chips, he was so cute. Someone help me out. Who? Chips, Eric Estrada. Come on. Oh yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's a good one. That's yeah, a good I would one. watch that show with like my brother and my dad, and they were like, "Yeah, Chips," and I was like, "Yeah, Chips." <laughs> <laughs> so you know what's really cool though, that there's probably some young person out there. Um, who's seen you up on stage or seen you on the screen or know your story and would probably one day say, hey, you know, my, my, my crush, my inspiration is Shakina. Wow, I love that. Thank you. You know, I never thought of people having TV crushes on me. I, I'm really into this, um, the, the, the concept of possibility models, which is a sort of different kind of crush. It's like a, it's like a hopeful crush. It's like a one day I could be because you are. And I really am glad to know that I'm a possibility model for a lot of folks because there were very few around when I was growing up. And now to be able to look out and see that we have, you know, so many stars in the sky who are offering beacons of hope for young queer and trans kids. And I'm, I'm really happy to be one of them. And I, I hope that I'm doing a good job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of, yeah. Of, yes, please. I mean, that was a setup, but yeah. thank you for taking the bait. <laughs> NBC's Quantum Leap, who's difficult people. I mean, duh, transparent, um, yeah. and Amazon. I mean, you're crushing it, and we're just getting started. Why don't we talk a little bit about getting into the industry itself? Because there are many of us who only see that as a dream. What was it like? What was? How did it all start for you? You know, I had a lot of, I would say, fits and starts because I always knew that I wanted to be in show business, but I never, like I said, I never saw a place for myself because there weren't a lot of possibility models. So I ended up going really far into the avant-garde, um, which you heard I got an MFA in experimental choreography and a PhD in critical dance studies because I was, I since I couldn't see a place for myself in the traditional model, I found myself attracted to these you know, really adventurous ways of expressing oneself that I found really healing, really transformative. And then like at one point when I was like dancing in a ditch in Mexico covered in mud, I was like, but what about Broadway, you know? And so I thought maybe I would never, I'd gone so far out there that I would never make it back. 
And I'm really indebted to the Drama League, actually. It's an incredible organization. It's the longest membership organization in the American theater and has been serving directors and the development of directors for 100 years. And uh, they kind of plucked me out of obscurity and gave me some opportunity in New York. They got me started at Barrington Stage Company, actually. And, um, you know, with that sort of like one ticket, one fellowship, it was like the the quote from Annie, you know, three bucks, two bags, one me. I moved to New York and said, I will I will make it here and um, tenaciously clawed my way to the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to the like really honestly the very top i mean to get into the writing room to get you know at the table making decisions yeah that's wild also because i went to new york to do theater and then i ended up doing tv and then that brought me back to the west coast and which is like the dream the dreamiest of dreams in fact i felt so fortunate to get the role of lola and uh, even from that moment when i when i was invited to the callback for that job it was not a traditional callback where you just like read the sides. You know, I, I was an hour long meeting with the, with the writers, Julie Klausner and Scott King. And they asked me like, what would you want to do with this character? What would you want to do with this platform? And I was like, well, if you're serious, I will come back with a dossier of all the things that I think are important for, for us to discuss in a lighthearted comedic and, you know, cynical way about trans liberation. And so that's when they brought me in as a consultant. Uh, and um, I was able to, from the beginning, you know, have the good fortune of at least, if not being in charge of my narrative, being able to contribute to the ways that I was working as an actor. And that's not, that's not the case for most actors. So because I was given that opportunity up front, I, I sort of just insisted upon it from every point after that. And, and I found that when I was in rooms where I was given a voice at the, at the table, a seat at the table, then I could actually succeed as an actor. But if I found myself in situations where I was just handed a script with someone else's assumptions of what a person like me would say or do, it never quite fit. It never quite worked. And that's usually because those creators weren't trans and they lacked, you know, a certain understanding. But now we have so many trans creators that it's possible. It's like, I don't have to be the only one in the room anymore, which is also really great. Yeah. I mean, I look back and it's incredible, you know, throughout our history and then where we're at today and that there are a collection of stories out there on the screens, big screens, you know, our home screens. Um, with that being said, getting our stories told and then getting it sold. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, you know, how do you, What's the success? What's the secret recipe or what's the sauce behind it? Well, right now, the secret recipe is striking. Because, um, yeah, you should give a hand out, please, for the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, because the fact is that I had so many experiences of creating really powerful, really beautiful content and um, getting it as far as I could possibly get it on my own and then being sort of swindled by false promises from networks and studios. And uh, and I felt like somehow that I was a failure in that, that I didn't have what it took to get it all the way or that because I was trans or because of my body, I, I, I wasn't going to ever be what they wanted. And I took it really personally. And then when this strike came about and we all had the opportunity to um, collectively air our grievances because one of the things that you do when you're in these negotiations is that you're not allowed to talk about it with anybody. And that, that's 
part of the way that they keep you isolated. So suddenly, all of us were like, wait, that happened to you? That happened to me? Well, we both had that happen? And then we realized, well, we've, we've all been exploited and mined for our creative labor and, and stories. And so I, I hope that coming out of this strike, which I hope will end soon, there will be a turning of the tides. And the folks who are coming in with this, um, the precious cargo that is our lived experience will be valued for what we bring as creators and storytellers at those highest levels. Because in places like theater works where you, you know, prize new work and you center the artist, like we come in here and we feel supported and, and loved and nourished, but that's not true once you get to these, you know, major corporate spheres. And uh, that is the model that we need to be following. That's the way we need to be making work. Well, thank you so much for your leadership in so many ways, right? It's your artistry has become also your leadership, which I love that you maintain, you know, the description of yourself as an activist. So with that being said, I hate to turn our attention to the current landscape of anti-LGBTQIA plus here in this country, but it is happening. I think, you know, backstage, we were having this conversation where I was saying, you know, when I look in our community, when I look, uh, you know, when I look up TV shows, movies, I go to musicals, I mean, I see us and I see positive depictions of us. We're thriving, we're flourishing, we're healthy, we're doing great things, people love us. You know, what the heck is this thing about, uh, you know, the continued anti-LGBTQIA plus crusade, especially attacking young people? Well, I mean, without getting too far into the political nitty gritty, I will say that I have found it to be true that whenever uh, the forces of light get closest to shining the brightest, the forces of darkness will come on stronger to try and prevent that from happening. And that is true, I think, of all folks who are in struggles for liberation. Uh, and there's always a backlash because uh, people fear losing power. And so the attempt to maintain power is usually constructed around targeting the most vulnerable among us and then convincing folks that um, that their oppression is actually for the safety and benefit of everybody else, and um, and that we've seen, you know, since Nazi Germany. You know what I mean? It's a it's a tale as old as time. It's a tactic, and um, and it's an unsustainable tactic. So uh, sometimes I think I just like sit back and smile as I watch the hateful people sputter themselves into exhaustion. And, you know, I know that, that that's a luxury because there are people who are really suffering because of the decisions that these hateful people make. But then, then the answer to me is, okay, how do we let those people know they're supported? How do we let those people know that they're seen? How do we give those people opportunity to express themselves and to connect and to feel part of a larger community? Because, Again, the tactic of the hateful is to make you feel alienated, isolated, separated, unsupported. And so rather than give my energy to, to that and try to create an equal and opposite reaction over there, I would much rather just affirm, 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 you know, the folks who thirst for that recognition and, and who need that support. And because I have come from that experience of, of feeling that isolation and loneliness, um, and feeling unseen, 
I, you know, I use what I understand from my own experience and I try to find ways to let these folks know that they're being witnessed, you know, even in their suffering, even in their disenfranchisement. And honestly, I, I believe that witnessing, honestly witnessing, seeing what people are going through is the first step toward creating that empathetic connection that moves us toward change. So that's what I try to do. Earlier this year in an episode uh, for Quantum Leap, you know, let's talk about uh, Let Them Play because that, I mean, huge. Yeah. This, the, the, the episode in itself, what you did, what you wrote, you know, and appearing, but the story, the story is what we need to tell more of. Thank you for that. You know, when I had my interview for Quantum Leap, I said in the interview, I was like, look, I could pitch you a story about trans kids in sports. But what I want to say is that because I'm trans, I know what it's like fundamentally to walk in someone else's shoes because I had to do it for the first half of my life. And so, you know, bring me in because I can bring that perspective to every character we write, not just a one-off trans character. That said, I held them to the idea of writing a story about trans kids in sports. And I knew that I wanted to create a story that, um, that centered a family and the family's struggle to just get through it. Because, I, I mean, I went, I went through it with, with my mom and my stepdad who are right there, you know, and, it, and it's so hard to just, I mean, look, it's hard to raise a teenager in general. And then it's really hard to raise a trans kid. You know, there's just, because we don't have all the, the, the support networks that we deserve and that we ought to have. And so I thought, let me create a story about a girl who, who's trans and just wants to play on her basketball team. And what if her dad's the coach? And what if our lead character in Quantum Leap, you know, every week Ben leaps into someone new and doesn't know how he got there, jumps into this dad who's suddenly a parent to a trans kid and has to figure it out. Because I'll tell you what, every parent who's a parent of a trans kid one day finds out they're a parent of a trans kid and just has to figure it out. So... Um, and you never know if that's going to be you and your kid or your grandkid or your niece or nephew. You never know until it happens and then you're there. And so I wanted to just put that in America's living rooms, you know, and uh, and really integrate all the perspectives, the, the perspective of the young person and their friends and their and her coach and her dad and the principal and, you know, all the key players that um, that are making decisions about young people's lives without really consulting the young people. And, um, you know, there's a great moment in the episode where um, Jocelyn Aguilera, who plays Gia, she says, um, you guys are the adults. You make the rules. Why can't you just make schools safe for everybody? I mean, that's the question we have to ask ourselves, you know, because we should be able to make school safe for everybody. What was uh, the response that you got? Or did you hear from NBC execs? Like, did they get responses? You know, it's interesting. They were firmly committed to telling the story. They never once backed down, but they were very afraid. 
And there was, you know, every uh, sort of episode when you're in a writer's room, there's sort of like uh, a pattern to the a timeline uh, because you have to move through so many episodes in a season. So, you know, it takes this long to get the treatment written and this long to get the outline written and this long for the first draft. And this process took so long that we had to push the episode back like later in the season because there were so many concerns. Well, intention concerns about how to bring in as many people as possible without alienating people. And still, you know, I'll tell you on IMDb, the episode has like a one star rating because um, it became like a secret hate campaign to, you know, review bomb. And um, to me, that's like, that's like a victory. You know what I mean? If it, if I got in your head that much that you had to like galvanize a group of people to go leave me a one-star review, then I'm doing something right. I love that, you know, we own this power to be able to courageously, you know, say that because a lot of people who work in the industry would not take that as a compliment. We'd be freaking out like, how am I going to make it? How am I going to make it? Do you, how do you get yourself out of that headspace where you constantly feel like this, this world is not made for us? You know, after a, a while, I started to trust more and more in the, the pattern that I found of um, something not working out for the best possible reason. And there would be moments when I thought like, I need this job, I need this gig because this is the thing that's gonna open the next door and that door would not open, but then another door would open and that would be the one that I needed the whole time and never knew about. And earlier in my career and in my life, I think that I, oh, I was hustling so hard and I, I still get stressed and anxious and nervous about it. But one thing I've learned is like, I'm not gonna put something on my plate that I don't wanna eat. You know, I'd rather have an empty plate for a minute and wait for that good meal. And so when, you know, when it used to be that when the opportunities wouldn't come, I would just fill myself up with anything I could because I needed to be busy and I needed to be productive and I needed people to see my work and know who I was. And then that great thing would come and I would be so exhausted. I wouldn't have time or the bandwidth to then pour into the thing that was really waiting for me. And so now I try to lay back a little more and I try to acknowledge when that nervousness or anxiety comes up. And I, then I say, like, you've been here before. This is how it always goes, you know? And, uh, and the next thing will come. Have you been watching me secretly in the last few <laughs> weeks? I feel like I just, oh, I got therapy from Shakina. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My pledge. I didn't have to, I didn't have to pay for it. Um, and, um, you know, on, Sitting up here having this conversation with you is a dream come true, by the way, because you're making it easier for a lot of us. But I'm sure you Thank get you. you get that a lot. Thank you. I, I've always said since I was really young, I, for better or worse, I deal with my personal issues in a public forum because I believe there's someone else out there who doesn't have the courage to ask for help. And so if I can share what I'm going through and it can reach out beyond my own experience to then serve someone else who's going through the same thing, then my healing has like double impact because it's mine for me and it's for others. So that's what I try to do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have a question for you from the audience. Has your voice changed during your transition? Did that impact your singing? 
That's a great question. You know, the the trans voice, especially in musical theater, is a subject of um, of discussion right now because uh, for so long, as I said, there there was no space for us, and so when then we started to um, see trans roles written, they were mostly written by cis people, and they were written with expectations for a cis voice. So. Um, it really depends on like any one person's transition, what they're going to experience in terms of a vocal modulation. Uh, there are certain biological factors that happen. It depends on when you start your transition versus when you had puberty. There are also the, also the question if you have like a medicalized transition or a socialized transition. For example, uh, if you are someone who was assigned female at birth and then you uh, end up having a transition that involves taking testosterone, your vocal cords will thicken and your voice will lower. But if you were someone from my position who was assigned male at birth and went through puberty as a young boy and then didn't transition to later, there was nothing I could do. There is a surgical intervention, but I was afraid to have that. And so uh, the ways that my voice has changed is that I have found power and beauty in the breadth of my range. And so I have trained to learn how to sing um, the, the highest and brightest that is in my capacity and also the deepest and mo most profound that is in my capacity. And when people want to assign a gender to my voice, I kind of point them to all these other examples that we have in popular culture and music of people across the gender spectrum who have voices across the range. And, you know, um, one of my icons growing up was Pat Carter, who was the voice of Ursula the Sea Witch. Come on. That, that voice, she, her voice was so low. Don't underestimate the importance of body language, you know? So, um, so the short answer, um, has my voice changed? Yes, I found it. Yeah. You said it a little bit ago, musical theater is changing. Um, say more. Well, <laughs> how much time we got, Michelle? No, uh, listen, it, one of the things that I, um, I've always loved about musical theater when I was growing up, two things. One, it's, it's a medium in which all languages of storytelling are spoken at once. We get, you know, music, dance, text, uh, and, and lights, and, and projection, and, and stage. It's all of these components working together for a story. The other thing that I loved about um, the history of, of the American musical theater is that it was a space that for a long time was always ahead of the curve when it, talking about social issues. Shows like Showboat, like the very first portrayal of interracial love, you know, in any media in this country. Um, we saw queer people on in Broadway shows before we saw queer people on TV and in movies. Um, and then something happened and we we lost we lost the plot and um somewhere in the rampant commercialization of broadway i think we stopped caring about our responsibility which was to tell america's story back to itself and eventually now to tell the world's story back to itself and now i think folks are coming back around to remembering uh, that this golden age of musical theater that we prize so much, speaking of starting with Oklahoma, you know, uh, those shows pushed the needle. They really did put people way outside of their comfort zone. And um, now we have so many, I mean, there's so much media being created all the time, but there's only 
you know, there's only one musical theater. You know, it's a very diverse and broad uh, category, but as a genre, you know, it's a really, it's a really small sandbox that um, for too long we haven't let everyone play in. And so I'm really excited, uh, and, I, and I, I'll take a lot of credit for, um, you know, kicking down the door and saying, we gotta let more people in here. Um, because, yeah, you know, when I don't see a, a space for myself and my community, I make that space. And so that's what I did with Musical Theater Factory. And, um, and now, you know, when I first came out in, in the Broadway community, I mean, I was like the one. And, um, you know, we had six trans people on Broadway in the, the 2019, 2020 season before the pandemic. And now I can't even tell you how many trans and non-binary people are not just on Broadway, but in, you know, in shows uh, all across the country, in resident theaters like TheaterWorks, also in academic programs. Now we're seeing these training programs opening up to trans and non-binary students and really like learning from the students about the kind of train ways we need to adapt our training so that all people can participate and really build their craft. I let's yeah. <laughs> it's just so huge. It's so huge. Um and then back to television though, aside from the issues that stem from the strike, you know, I know that we talk a whole lot about the importance of uh, allowing ourselves to tell our stories. Right. So how do we continue this momentum? What other stories are you going to tell once you know you get back into that writing room? I mean, I'm I'm really excited. I'm really excited for the episode I'm writing for season two of Quantum Leap. So when we get back to that episode, um, I can't tell you much about it, but let's just say it's thematically related to what we've been talking about this evening. Um, and then also uh, I have uh, a show that is very near and dear to my heart is based off my own life story. Um, I wrote a play called Chonburi International Hotel and Butterfly Club about my journey to Thailand for gender confirmation and the incredible community of women and Thai folk that I met there who supported me through that journey. And I am developing that as an episodic series. So I'm really looking forward to getting into a writer's room with like all trans and Thai people and being like, this is the story we are telling together and the sense we are making of our interconnectedness. So that's one project I'm really excited about. I also have a gospel film that I'm writing with one of my dear friends, Kyler O'Neill, who's an incredible uh, singer, songwriter, and a uh, black trans woman. And uh, we were developing this for a long time for a network that backed out. And we're excited to take it back out to market once we can, once the strike's over and we can go back to selling. So yeah, um, and the stories will keep coming because now I think the folks, you know, who hold the purse strings know that our stories have value, not just social value, but economic value. People like to watch us. People like to know about experiences outside of themselves. So I'm really excited for the next wave of queer and trans content that's going to come after the strike. I know you're living your dream now and working with some of the most talented people, including yourself. <laughs> um, but if you could share with us, you know, dream list of, you know, short dream list of some folks that you would love to work with? I mean, honestly, I love everyone I get to work with and I just want to see us able to continue working together and to be supported 
in the ways that we deserve to be supported because we've worked together for so hard and so long on the struggle bus and I'm really excited to see us thrive. So I, I could name a, a lot of names, but I worry I'd leave someone out. Um, yeah, yeah. But my my collaborators uh, across genre are are folks. I mean, I just want to make art with the people I love for the rest of my life. That doesn't seem like such a hard ask, but um, but it would be great to be able to like not worry about things like rent and food and car payments when you're doing that. It'd be great to know that your basic human needs are met so you can be a productive member of society and create great art. The work, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The work continues for you. I mean, tonight we get a special treat. There's a, there's a lot happening, a lot of <laughs> yes. performances, an after party, which we're all here for. We're, yes. we're going to stay with you all night till the morning, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit about Five and Dime. Yeah. I'm really excited to be sharing the music from Five and Dime tonight. Uh, Five and Dime is a new musical um, that I am writing lyrics for with the composer Dan G. Sells, who wrote the music for Everybody's Talking About Jamie and the recent production of Brokeback Mountain on the West End. And the book is by Ashley Robinson. And it's an adaptation of Ed Graysick's iconic Broadway play from the early 80s, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And um, the film uh, version of the play was directed by Robert Altman. It featured the Broadway cast and the film uh, Cher, Kathy Bates, Sandy Dennis and Karen Black in the role of Joanne, which was the first trans character that we saw on Broadway, played by a cis woman, but at least played by a woman, so thank you. Um, and um, it's, a, it's an incredible, uh, incredible play filled with these really juicy monologues and scenes with these women who are coming back from a to a 20 year high school reunion of their fan club, the Disciples of James Dean. And the, um, the character of Joanne uh, wasn't Joanne the last time she saw these girls. She was Joe. And she was like the one boy in the club. And um, she comes back as this mysterious stranger and they all kind of figure out, you know, who she is. And like any great 20 year reunion, there's a lot of like drama that gets <laughs> unearthed. And um, ultimately we learn that Joanne is there to claim parentage over a child that she conceived with one of the other women in this club. And for the last 20 years, that woman has been telling the world that her son was the illegitimate love child of James Dean. And, um, and so, um, of course, that lie has to come crashing down. Um, and it's very painful for her, but it's also healing for them and for this whole group of women who realize that the secrets that they kept from one another um, really got in the way of them, you know, deepening and strengthening their sisterhood. I want to know where you get your inspiration for, you know, all the stories that you tell. <laughs> I mean, this one I was actually invited to be a part of. That yeah. Ashley and Dan were already working on uh, conceiving the musical, and they knew they wanted to work with a trans writer. And I had just written lyrics for Transparent and uh, the, the Amazon Transparent uh, musical finale. And so they, um, yeah, they invited me, you know, to meet with them. And 
I watched the film and I and I remembered back when I was in high school, all the girls were doing monologues from Five and Dime. It was like the show that people were doing monologues from. But I had totally forgotten that there was this iconic trans storyline. And uh, then I watched the film and said, well, I have to I have to tell this story. And at that time, I actually didn't think that I was the one who should play Joanne. I was just like, yeah, let me let me work on it. Let me write it. Um, and then as we continued writing it, I was like, oh, I think this is the role that I'm going to play. And um, and then it got really juicy. <laughs> well, in a little bit, we get to hear you sing a song from Five and Dime. Um, but before we do that, there's this question from the audience, which I think is a great question to wind down on. What dream do you still want to achieve? I want to climb Machu Picchu with my cousins. <laughs> uh, but, that's, but that's a different dream. But we're going to do that. Um, I I mean, you know, I have not played a role on Broadway yet. I've been on Broadway a couple times, which is amazing, in like uh, one-off uh, gala events. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm really excited to have that opportunity to, to like do an eight-show week, um, you know, and like have my dressing room four flights up and uh, just live that, live that, um, legacy you know it's such like a passing of the torch moment and um yeah I mean I have so many unfulfilled dreams in Hollywood you know because I've I'm literally just working my way up you know um so the opportunity to uh you know direct the movie that I'm writing would be really a, an incredible dream um i I'm, I'm really excited that I am making my feature film debut as an actor uh, in Julio Torres's Problemista, which is going to be coming out whenever the strike ends. Um, and, you know, it's really hard in the in this industry to do the like crossovers from one thing to the other. So I've managed to, you know, like set my foot on a Broadway stage, actually got my heel caught in a scenery track. And then uh, and then to do what I've done in TV so far and hope that continues. And now that I have like crossed into feature film, you know, I hope that that door swings wide open because that would be a great place to keep playing. Any um, aspirations for politics? No. <laughs> <laughs> Except to be, you know, a commentator. I, I think that everybody, I'll say that I, cause it's one of my favorite things to say, everybody has a job in the revolution. We all have something that we can do to make the world a better place. And and, you know, I actually, like, I had a, a really incredible meeting with um, Senator Gillibrand from New York um, a couple months ago, and we were talking about this onslaught of attacks on trans kids. And she was like, you know, I just think we need to, like, bring some families with trans kids to D.C. so that these people can meet them and realize that they're human. And I was like, Senator, if you are serious, I will gather families from across the country with trans kids, and I will bring them to D.C. And, in fact, I'm working on that. So that's pretty cool. like Shiro, 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 <laughs> every single minute that we're having this conversation. Um, my last question for you, I mean, just to bring it back home, mm -hmm. uh, if you're catching me here, we started out talking about it feeling like home. You have your family here. There's a lot of love and support in this room. Um, so this last question is, what advice would you give to young Shakina? Hmm. That's a good one. You know, I would say to my younger self, um, trust the vision of who you want to be in the world. 
because it'll happen. You know, it takes a while. But, and I would say that to any young person and any person of any age who needs to do healing around their inner young person, you know, trust that you always knew what you wanted and then maybe be less afraid to go for it. Shakina, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. We got another question. <laughs> oh, oh. Tossed up here. well, we can see. yeah, we we're a little out of time, but um, let's see. I hope this question is it's a short the best one ever. Doing, so. Yeah, it is. It's good. <laughs> You're off the hook. Hold on. Let me make sure I'm reading it correctly. <laughs> oh, okay. If everyone saw you just as a woman, what would be loss? My story, you know? I think that there are a lot of trans folks uh, for whom uh, what we call passing, moving through the world without anyone needing to know their journey, uh, for whom that is a goal and, and a right, I'll say, a right. Um, but I have chosen to carry a particular cross, which is my willingness to eschew the privilege of passing in order to um, keep the door open for others, you know? Um, and so that's why I, I claim my transness proudly. Um, and, and also because I think it's important for us to enlarge our agreement around what constitutes womanhood. And if I were to, you know, try to conceal my transness in order to be part of the exclusive club of womanhood, then I would be contributing to the same dynamics that made me feel unwelcome for so long. When, when really what I think the world needs is more sisterhood, you know, more divine feminine, more powerful women of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds coming together to say, to the patriarchy, you know? So, yeah. Okay, that, that definitely was a mic drop moment. At least this mic. Let's get you up on that okay, mic. Okay, well, let's do it. Shakina, everyone. So I mentioned the story of Five and Dime uh, talks about this woman, Joanne, coming home to claim parentage, uh, co-parentage from the child that she conceived with a, a, her best friend and first love in high school. And one of the wonderful things about the musical Five and Dime is that we play with time a lot in such a way that Joanne is kind of played by two people. We, we have Joanne on stage in this reunion, and then we have the sort of present ghost of her childhood self, Joe. And in the musical, that role is played by a transmasculine actor. So we have two trans people playing both sides of the same coin of this one character. And, uh, just last year, I was at Northwestern University working on this musical with their students. And uh, I realized that there was a missing song moment, which was the moment that Mona, the mother of this child who she purports to be from James Dean, um, realizes who she's looking at. And you know, sometimes when you like see someone you haven't seen for a long time, you see, you just, you see who they were. And it's kind of hard to see who they are. And so, um, I imagined what the last moment might have been that 
Mona saw Joe and um, and I wrote this song for Joe, but I also wrote this song for the women I loved growing up and who loved me and who couldn't see the whole me because I couldn't see the whole me. And um, this sort of an offering. And uh, it's also, I'll say, you know, inspired by the golden age of musical theater. This is Joe's song. The first kiss I gave you, I tried to believe in all of the things that we were. But a prince just can't be a princess's charm when being hers what he'd prefer. The next kiss I gave you, I pressed to your hands, pleading for you to forgive the ways that I failed you by being a man who strayed from ways other men lived. I asked you to run away with me. You told me that I was a fool. We both know the word that you wanted to say, but I begged you not to be cruel. The last kiss I gave you, I blew to the wind As your crying face turned from mine Figured two broken hearts were too many to mend So I left and left us both behind Let's hear it for Shakina and Michelle Meow Thank you so much. Fantastic job. And thank you again for coming out. And thank you, Michelle. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club. And thank you to Theater Works. Thank you so much.